Heavenly Father, it is a solemn thing to be warned by the Son of God, and that is just exactly our lot today in this portion of your word. Help us then to listen solemnly and attentively. Grant that we feel the power of Jesus' words and see their personal, individual impact on each of us. Turn our eyes to fix on you, we pray, and move our hearts to cling to your word. Set our feet to walk in your ways and teach us to care for others as keenly as Jesus cares for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in this fourth discourse, Matthew 18, Jesus is painting a picture of life together as kingdom citizens. He's looking forward to the future church that he announced that he would be building back in chapter 6. He announced back in chapter 6 he'd be building it. He begins building it in Acts chapter 2, but here he's equipping the leaders of this future church, telling them about what life is for citizens of the kingdom together. And uh, he takes up the topic of trip sticks, which brings us to think of our enemy's tactics Uh, The favorite weapon of our enemy is deception. His poison is always brought to us in a sparkling cup. You see the cheese, you don't see the trap. That's not his way. So we need constantly to be on our guard. But what does that mean for us as people together, as citizens together of the kingdom of God? What responsibility do I have for others? And what is my responsibility in watching myself? Well, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus talks about in this section. Remember, there's six sections in Matthew chapter 18, two sets of three. This is the second of the first set. The first deals, uh, and also this part that we're looking at right now, this second part itself divides into two parts. The first focuses on my responsibility towards others. The second, on my urgent need to guard myself. So let's look first then, Roman numeral one. And we see our Lord Jesus says, don't trip others, verses 6 and 7. Don't be tripping others. Don't trip others. And we're just going to go uh, at this very simply, first looking at the words themselves and asking ourselves what Jesus means. It's capital letter A, what Jesus means by saying this. Let's read uh, verses 6 and 7 from my translation. But whoever trips up one of these small ones who believe in me, It is to his advantage that a donkey millstone be hung around his neck and he be sunk in the depth of the sea. Yikes. Verse 7, woe to the world because of trip sticks. For it is a necessity for trip sticks to come. Nevertheless, woe to the man through whom the trip stick comes. Well, first we need obviously to understand trip sticks. This is the theme of the section. I love what's obvious. If you were to circle trip sticks uh, in this section, you'd find that six times that concept occurs. Uh, Three times as a noun, three times as a verb. See again, but whoever trips up one of these small ones who believe in me, verse 6. Verse 7, woe to the world because of trip sticks. The noun is three times just in verse 7. For it is a necessity for trip sticks to come. Nevertheless, woe to the man through whom the trip stick comes. And then the verb two more times in verses 8 and 9. But if your hand or foot trips you up, verse 9, if your eye trips you up. 
So actually, you see now uh, the title of the sermon. I don't know if you puzzled over why I chose that as the title, Don't Be Tripping. Well, our word trip can be transitive or intransitive, right? If you need a grammar refresh, uh, I can trip someone else or I can trip, right? You can trip me or I can just trip, I can just fall. And so it's used in that sense here. And the first focus of Jesus on is the uh, transitive sense. Don't trip others. He warns us, don't trip others. Don't be the occasion of it. And woe to it, those who let it happen. So let's look at the meaning of this image then, the trip stick. And I remind you that uh, we've seen this before. Literally, this is a stick on a trap uh, that when you trip that stick, the trap is sprung. Um, a modern example would be uh, where the cheese goes in a mouse trap. Now, Jesus probably didn't have exact mouse traps uh, in his day, but that's the idea. That's what the trip stick is in a mouse trap. He's thinking of trip sticks where a piece of meat perhaps lured in an animal, and when he takes the meat, the trap is sprung. So that's the literal sense. The metaphorical sense then came to be whatever traps somebody, or the process of trapping, or the whole trap itself, not just the trip stick. So the spiritual sense comes from here. What, what, what is a trip stick in the spiritual sense? It's something that causes great harm to someone. It's something that can ensnare someone, cause someone to fall, cause someone uh, great uh, misery and stumble him. Uh, in the, in the, the uh, specific application can be a range of miseries. You see the worst in verses 8 and 9, where if I have a, see one in myself, I see that I have a trip stick in me, I should pluck it out, even if it's like an eye or a hand or a leg, because the consequence of not pulling it out is going to hell forever. Obviously, that's a very, very serious application. That's the worst in the scale of things that are trip sticks. So that's the idea, something that causes harm, specifically in this case to little ones who believe in him. And always, always, this is very important, a trip stick is going to involve deception. It doesn't look like what it is. It doesn't look like a trap. Uh, Proverbs 1.17 says, it's of no use to spread the net in front of a bird. The idea being that if the animal sees it's a trap, he's not going to fall for it. Well, that's the case here. If we saw they were traps, well, you'd think, you'd hope, we wouldn't fall for them. They don't present themselves as traps. There's the idea. The specifics here, Jesus underlines tripping up one of these small ones who believe in me. So faith, he mentions, faith is going to be the target here. The faith of these little ones is going to be targeted. It's, it's the idea of some attempt to attack the faith of one who's believed in the Lord Jesus, to try to discourage him in his faith. Bishop Ryle uh, from the 1800s says, we put offenses or stumbling blocks in the way of men's souls whenever we do anything to keep them back from Christ or turn them out of the way of salvation or disgust them with true religion. I think of a recent uh, conversation I had with a young man at a store where I was doing business. And uh, he said, because um, we were talking about spiritual things, and he said, well, I need to get back to church. And uh, I said, well, I can fix you up, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I passed her a church nearby, and I gave him my card. And he said, oh, he looked at that. He said, oh, that's great. He said, so, but how would they feel about... Well, it tells you about my mindset. I had no idea what he was talking about when he patted his arm. I had no idea. I said, oh, I'm sorry, what? And he said, well, I mean, I'm black. 
And I said, oh, I said, you'd be very, very welcome. You're created in God's image just like anyone else. You'd be very, very welcome. And then I said, I am sorry that you feel like you have to even ask that question. Now just think, I know it, it could have been in his head, I don't know him well, but just think if he had, had gone to a church to hear the word of God at some point, and some person not of his race had made it clear to him he wasn't welcome because of his skin color. That person would be laying a trip stick for this young man, for his soul. And that would be the sort of thing that Jesus is talking about, but just one of many, many possible applications of it. So uh, then little ones, that's the trip stick, but what does Jesus mean when he speaks of little ones? Is it uh, where you measure on a, on a measuring rod, or what is he talking about? Well, he's made a shift from talking about literal little children to those who have made themselves like little children, as he talks about in the first section. And little one means not a child per se, but it means a disciple. How does it mean a disciple? Well, he'd signaled the shift in, va- in verse 8. That's why I put again the translation in your outline. Look at, I said verse 8, verse 5, I mean. When he says, whoever welcomes one little child such as this on my name, it is he who welcomes me. So a child uh, such as this, that is somebody who's listened to what Jesus said in verses 3 and 4, where he said, unless you are converted and become as the little children, you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4, he says, whoever will humble himself as this little child, we talked about last week, this is he who is greatest in the kingdom of the heavens. So who's a little one? He's someone who's done this. He's someone who's become as a little child. He has humbled himself. He started all over again, denying himself and picking up his cross. He's been born again. He's converted. Now he's a little one. He's one of Jesus' little ones who believe in him. That's what he's talking about when he talks about little ones here. Paul uh, echoes the same idea. Um, The more I study Matthew, the more I see how much Paul echoes the teachings of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. You needn't turn there, uh, but do if you like. I'll read to you. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers, that there are not many of you wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. And so he calls us his little ones. Not impressive to the world, but we've become his little children. We've humbled ourselves. We've been converted. We've been born again. And we're walking in the way of Jesus. Now, continuing with this thought, you can see that someone who has put himself in this place where Jesus says to put ourselves is very vulnerable and he's very needy. He has uh, wiped his hard disk, so to speak. He's starting over. He is in great need of teaching and help. So what he needs to do, what somebody needs to do when they're converted, and it always warms my heart to see this, always concerns me when I don't, Uh, When somebody professes Christ, he needs to get into the Word of God in a faithful church, like right away. He needs to get into the Word of God deep, hard, and continually, and he needs to get himself involved in a faithful church where he'll be guarded and loved and taught and discipled in the way of Christ. Because you know, when this happens, Satan has a thousand counterfeits on his shelf, all shiny and ready to go, and fully stocked 
Whatever the temperament of the person is, intellectual, emotional, whatever, he's got something designed for that person. And he looks at the person, he picks just the thing, and he'll come right in if that person doesn't get into God's Word and God's fellowship. He'll come right in with his trip sticks to try to foul that person's walk up at the start, when he's vulnerable, when he's open, when he knows he needs to learn. So, Jesus is warning against this happening. He says, whoever trips up one of these small ones who believes in me. Now, what did he just say in verse 5? Whoever welcomes one little child such as this one on my name, it is me he welcomes. So if we welcome somebody like that and thereby we welcome Christ, what do we do when we try to trip up someone like that? How seriously should that be taken? Obviously, the Lord Jesus takes it very, very seriously, whether we do it or whether we see it happening and just don't care to get involved or don't know enough to do anything because we haven't prepared to be of any use to anybody because our heart's so cold and so lazy and so self-involved. This is the sort of thing Jesus warns against. And he says of the person uh, who... Uh, is the cause of this, who tries to trip up one of these little ones. He says, it is to his advantage that a donkey millstone be hung around his neck and he be sunk into the depth of the sea. What's a donkey millstone? (laughs) Well, there were small millstones in that day, small enough for a woman herself just to use to crush grain, maybe 18 inches in diameter. That's not what he's talking about when he says a donkey millstone. A donkey millstone was so large that it took a donkey to push it and crush the grain. That could be four feet in diameter. That obviously was a huge and very, very heavy thing. And so Jesus wants us to have the mental image of roping a rope through the hole in the middle of that thing, tying the other end to the neck of this person, going out to the open sea, out of sight of land, and throwing the rope, throwing the millstone overboard. And the person follows and sinks into the depth, never to be seen again. And Jesus said, that would be better, being that person would would be better than being the person who tries to trip up one of these little ones. Very, very serious. He says better that that would happen before he would do such a thing. So the idea is that he sinks out of sight where he can do no one any harm. He says that is better than the fate of somebody who tries to trip up one of these little ones. What an image. And so then Jesus says, woe to the world because of trip sticks. Yes, this is a very, very serious thing to try to trip up somebody who's beginning to try to follow the Lord Jesus Christ or is following the Lord Jesus Christ. Better to be cast into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world, he says, because of strip trip sticks. And then he says, woe to the man through whom the trip stick comes. Woe. That's a lamenting, doleful warning. It's the opposite of saying blessed. When he says blessed in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying how great for the person who is poor in spirit. How wonderful for the person who's poor in spirit. This is the opposite of that. When he says woe, he says how awful, how horrifying, how terrible for the person who's in this place. How terrible for the world because of trip sticks. How terrible for the man through whom the trip sticks come, he says. Now he says it's a necessity that they come. Why is it a necessity that they come? 
because world gonna world. It's a fallen world. And with Genesis 3, the world was plunged into sin. The world was plunged into this whole we don't need, we don't need God project. We'll show our self-sufficiency. We will be gods to ourselves. And that's the spirit of the world, and that's a disastrous spirit. Woe to the world. Woe to the world in two ways. Woe to the world because it brings itself such misery. We see that today, don't we? You don't have to look far at all. You don't have to look beyond your own block to see what this uh, rebellion against God has brought people. Broken hearts, broken lives, broken bodies, broken minds. Like uh, the uh, theologian... um, uh, Greg Bonson says, Jesus doesn't just save our souls, he saves our minds. Is We've lost our mind in our rebellion against God. As I keep saying, a, a person who doesn't know what it means to, to be a man or a woman, well, how does it get much more fundamental than that? Except we don't really know what it means to be human. We don't know what a baby is. We've completely lost our minds, and we're trying hard to lose them more every day in our society. Well, that's the tripstick mentality of this world, and Jesus says, woe to the world for it. But not just because of the miseries that it causes, but because of the guilt before God that the world takes its deception and its lies, and it goes to anybody who would give any thought to Christ and says, oh, you don't want to be with them. Oh, you don't want to go that way. Oh, you don't want to be that sort of a person. You don't want to lose all credibility, lose all your friends, lose all your contacts, lose all hope of of public office, lose your job possibly. No, no, no. You don't want to go that way. None of the best people goes that way. Well, that brings the judgment of God, and we're seeing the judgment of God falling on our world that is such a purveyor of tripsticks everywhere we go. So, it's a necessity because the world is going to world, and God permits it until the judgment falls and Christ returns. But oh, to be the avenue of such, to be the man who conveys one of these tripsticks, the woman who gives her mouth to, who gives her influence to, who gives his power and name to being a tripstick to one of these little ones. Oh, to be that person. Whoa. Jesus says, woe, don't be that guy, is the solemn warning of these verses. So, having looked at the meaning of the words, then let's look letter B at what obedience requires. What, what do we need to do if we take Jesus' warning seriously? And I do encourage you, take Jesus' warning seriously. <laughs> if that needs to be said, I say it. Take him seriously. What does it take? to obey, obey his warning and heed it and show that we heed it. Well, first of all, it takes love for God. Love for God? What does that have to do with it? Oh, it has everything to do with it. Because first of all, how do I know what a tripstick is? Unless I know God in his ways. How do I know what pointing in the wrong direction or knocking off the right direction is unless I know what the right direction is? And to know that, I need to know God. And to care about that, I have to love God. I have to be somebody who, like Deuteronomy 6 says, loves God with all my heart to the point where my heart is filled with his word because I seek so earnestly, so passionately to know him and to know him well, to know him intimately. Only such can I know what the opposite is. Can I know what a counterfeit is? I know you've heard the analogy a thousand times, make it a thousand and one, that the way to tell counterfeit money is to really know what real money looks like. To know so well what a genuine hundred dollar bill looks like that once you see a phony, it immediately presents itself. Well, how do we do that in this case, in this area? 
It's only by knowing God well, by knowing His truth well. So much so that when we hear, when we see, when we sniff an example of its opposite, oh, we right away know something's off. We may right away know what it is, we may not, but immediately at least a yellow light starts flashing in our mind. And we turn again and we look more closely and we find out. But that's only if we know God and His ways. And how do we do that? The only way is to get into His Word. Personally, to get into His Word. Uh, and uh, uh, to look from that at how do I speak about God and His ways, because that reflects the degree to which I love Him. Do I speak glibly? Uh, it never ceases to sober me, to, to kind of stun me, to see how many professed Christians say things about God. They have no idea what they're saying. They've never looked in the Bible to see whether the Bible teaches that. And we're talking about God. We're talking about things of eternal consequence, things we haven't seen or touched. We only know what we know if we know it by His Word. But people just reel off their opinions about hell and heaven and angels and judgment and life and decisions and everything without ever having once sat down in the class of Christ and learned what the Word of God says. Well, that's to speak of God lightly. And that's what it means to take His name in vain. To speak lightly, to speak as if it's nothing, as if it's weightless. And that, of course, is the great trouble of the professing church today. God has become weightless. He rests so easily on us. We aren't humbled. We aren't, we aren't brought low before Him and filled with the, the thoughts of His glory and His reality. So do I know God well enough that I even can discern false doctrine? Again, Bishop Ryle says, false doctrine does not meet men face to face and proclaim that it is false. It does not blow a trumpet before it or and endeavor openly to turn us away from the truth as it is in Jesus. It does not come before men in broad day and summon them to surrender. It approaches us secretly, quietly, insidiously, plausibly, in such a way as to disarm men's suspicion and throw him off his guard. It is the wolf in sheep's clothing and Satan in the garb of an angel of light who, get, who have always proved the most dangerous foes of the church of Christ. That's what obedience requires, such love for God that we take his word into our hearts and know him well. And it also involves love for our neighbor. Specifically, it involves caring enough that we are unwilling to see them be tripped, that it matters to us that they not be led astray, that they not be led to disaster spiritually, that we take it personally, that they not be brought into temptation and stumble before it. So we have to understand what constitutes error and temptation so that we never do this ourselves and we're never part of bringing it to someone else. We've got to put our skin in the game and be concerned about watching over our neighbor. They've got to matter to us and not just our precious selves, and not just our precious time. But to do this again, I've got to know God's word and his ways. How else do I know what a tripstick is? How do I know truth from error? How do I know right from wrong? How do I know wisdom from folly unless I've prepared myself by learning it myself? Because the truth is I am going to relate to people. You can't really fully get away from it. People are going to say things in my hearing. They're going to say them to me. This conversation I alluded to earlier started with the fellow talking about ghosts and wishing me good luck. 
Well, there were two low-hanging curveballs, and the third came when he said, well, what do you think happens when we die? I like it when it's served up to me on a plate. So, but, but, you know, people just are going to say things to you. If you listen and you watch, you'll have opportunity. Well, what do you do? They'll share about their feelings, their choices, their lives. They'll share about what they're reading or hearing, the church they're going to. Well, what should I say in a situation like that? What mustn't I say in a situation like that? What do my example and my choices say? That it's very important to follow Christ's way or it doesn't really matter. What matters more is fill in the blank. So that's what obedience requires. Let's talk about what obedience involves. And again, it involves love for God. I've got to love God enough to take his son's warning to heart personally. I need to love God enough to invest my time in getting to know him. My effort in getting to know him. His ways and His Word. Learning His Word and His ways for myself. And it involves loving my neighbor enough that I have relationships to be involved in people's lives. If I work things so that I'm always hiding behind somebody or I'm always in, out, quick, 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 so that I never touch other people's lives, well then, this is me avoiding being of any use in guarding people against trip sticks. This is me staying out of people's lives and therefore not showing any love for my neighbor. But this is exactly what, well, this is exactly one of the reasons why Jesus makes a church and makes it what it is. And it's one of our reasons for existing. It's one of the important things we do uh, as a church. So do look with me at Hebrews chapter 3, please. Hebrews chapter 3, and we will start with verse 12. Look at verses 12 and 13. The writer says, See to it, brothers, that there are not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. My, that's a, po- a powerful section. You might hear that and you think, wow, that is really, that's a pastoral call. I mean, the, the call to have pastoral care. This must be written to pastors. No, the section is not particularly written to pastors. Yes, it is part of the pastor's call, but he lays this on all of us who profess the name of Christ. You see to it, he says, brothers. Simply, if you are in the family of God with me, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, how do I know that if I have no relations? If I've got a plan to keep myself out of being involved in anybody's lives and never having involvement, my nose is just, uh, I'm standing by a relative, my nose is in a book, a phone, whatever. I don't actually touch people's lives. How can I do this? There's no hope of my doing this, and yet I'm called to do this to look at the heart of those in my fellowship, to know them so that I can encourage them lest they be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, which is a danger to every last one of us. And so it takes all of us to be on watch for each other and each other's safety to not let that weed start to grow. Here's the need to be faithfully involved in a faithful church and part of it and involved in it, not just a visitor, not a passerby, but a fully functioning member. Look at the well-known chapter 10 and look perhaps more closely at these well-known verses. Verse 
Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider, now literally the Greek text, and this is worth pointing out, pointing out, literally it says, let us consider one another. He calls us to make a study of one another. Again, a thing we can't do at a distance. A thing that involves becoming involved in other people's lives. Let us consider closely one another. How to stimulate to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, there's our responsibility towards each other to be on guard over each other. Now that involves, that requires love for God to take His command seriously, and His command is to love others, to watch out for them, so that somebody says, oh, you know, I picked up this book called Good Morning Holy Spirit by Benny Hinn, it's just the most encouraging thing, and you got a red light going in your head, boom, 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 and you're able to be of help. Well, I just really love, and I love uh, reading Beth Moore. I've got this Henry Blackaby book, or I've just started listening to this, this guy, Stephen Furtick, and boy, he's really thrilling. Or here's this guy who really wants to show me how to have my best life right now. And just you were going, you know, you got lights going off and sirens in your head. And so you open your mouth, and in love, you're willing to risk the relationship because you love God more and because you love that person. And you're going to step in and say, now, you hear me say this, and you're th- I'm, I imagine somebody's saying, what's wrong with those people? Honestly, now there's a problem right there. There's a problem right there to not know. I've just named some harmful false teachers to one or another degree. But there are so many of them out there, and they're so popular, and you just have to think, boy, the, all their followers, do they have nobody in their life who knows the Word of God and loves God and loves them enough to speak truth to them? warn them about this trip stick that they're holding on to and running after? That's what this calls us to. That's what it involves. Don't be tripping other people. Secondly, Jesus says don't get tripped. And here's the intransitive sense if you're following your grammar book at home. Don't get tripped, verses 8 and 9. And let's first look at his words and see what Jesus means. In verses 8 and 9, letter A, what Jesus means, he says, but if your hand or your foot trips you up, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into eternal fire. And if your eye trips you up, tear it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter life one-eyed than having two eyes to be cast into the Gehenna of fire. What word did you hear over and over again? You. You hear the word you over and over again. If you were to circle, you'd find nine times altogether if you circled each occurrence. In these two verses, nine times he says you. It's interesting, Jesus is doing in this section the opposite of what he did in the first section. I don't know if you remember that they ask who's the greatest in the kingdom of the heaven, and the first thing he does is he says you. Unless you're converted, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he speaks generally. Whoever humbles himself is this little child. Here in this section, he does the opposite. First, he speaks in general terms, warning about trip sticks, either being the, the reason for them. But now he turns to them personally and says, you. This is not just academic. It's not just the other guy. You need to watch yourself for the trip stick inside of you. 
So this is a great focus on me individually. You could say Jesus curls his finger under our collar and tugs lightly or perhaps uh, vigorously so as to be sure to get our attention. Yes, I am talking to you, he says. This is a danger for you, not just academic and not just out there. So they, don't, they aren't unconnected because what's the first essential in my not tripping others up? My not tripping. <laughs> if I trip, then I'm going to trip other people. I can't guard others from tripping if I myself am tripping up. So uh, the believer who, uh, the professed believer who trips causes other great harm. And we need to care about the glory of God. If, if I trip, it is to God's uh, discredit. I name the name of God. If I trip, then I bring shame to God. Is your mind already going back to the case of David who badly tripped? Remember what Nathan says to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. He says, By this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme. And when the Christian trips, he gives occasion to the enemies of Christ to blaspheme, which we don't care about at all if God's glory is not important to us. But if God's glory is important to us, that alone is reason enough to watch ourselves closely that we not bring disgrace to the name of God. So um, the commentator Bengel back in the, I think, 1700s, said, he who is not careful to avoid offense to himself will cause offense to others, and vice versa. Perhaps you've seen this as I have, that the person who becomes an apostate, he's once named the name of Christ, and now he's, he's fallen in some way. He doesn't repent, and he's immediately on a mission to get everyone else to go in the same direction because it's the only way he can salve his own miserable conscience. Uh, if other people go with him, then he must have done the right thing. Of course, that doesn't change it. So, I must maintain a self-watch here. Jesus says, you, I need to hear this, and I need to realize that he calls me to watch myself closely and keep an eye on myself for the tripsticks in myself. And so he says, uh, your hand, your foot, your eye. If your hand, your foot, your eye trips you up. Uh, I trust you know immediately he's not speaking literally and he's not speaking about literal excisions or, or uh, lopping off or plucking out of these members. I had a friend who was blinded in the Korean War and he told me with great feeling that losing his eyesight did not, did not eliminate temptation. <laughs> Though his eyes weren't working, temptation was still working just fine and requiring his constant uh, watch inside. These are metaphors, the eye, the hand, the foot. They're metaphors for how we think, how we see things, how we live and make decisions, how we carry ourselves and, and live our lives. But the, the, the common factor in all these things is that it's something dear to us. It's not something that we want to part with. You don't want to have your eye plucked out, your hand cut off, your leg lopped off. You don't want that. These things uh, are important to you. And so that's the kind of tripstick that he's talking about. The great danger is the thing that's important to me, that matters to me, that's become large to me. Puritans used to have the expression, your darling sin. 
And that's a good one. That's a good way to say it because it endears itself to us to the point where we don't see it as being deadly. We see it as important to us. So what sorts of things are we talking about? Well, of course, perhaps your mind goes to the obvious things like such as, as drunkenness or promiscuity, uh, doing drugs, porn, things like that. Yes, those all can be trip sticks. But we should also think such as, of such things as the yearning for man's approval. The sort of person to whom what, what uh, uh, his, his uh, mother or father, his wife or husband, uh, friends, co-workers think of him matters more than walking with Christ loyally, that I can't displease this person. And doesn't, haven't you read Jesus saying that he who comes to me and, and loves mother or father more than me? son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and yet this is the sort of thing because it's in itself not evil, but when it becomes more important than a faithful walk to Christ, well, then it's a tripstick, and that person is a tripstick, and how many times have I seen people ruined over just this thing? This relationship uh, is more important than a loyal, faithful walk with Christ according to the Word of God, and, and what happens in a case like that? Well, they just wander. They just trip. They're just trapped. Uh, desire to, defriend, to befriend the world. Remember, James warns us that, that if we desire to be the world's friend, then we make ourselves God's enemy. And that friendship with the world is adultery against God. James warns us, yet how many people, are, how many leaders have I seen in the last 10 years who fall away because they're so desperate to be respected? and liked and respected to, to get a column at the New York Times to be on the board of this or the conference for that. And yeah, they need, to, they need to sand off the edges. They need to eliminate some of the most offensive things in the world's eyes. That's okay as long as they get that place of, of uh, respect and of prominence. Well, that's their tripstick. Or a self-image of, of having it basically together because I basically have a good head on my shoulders. So I don't really need to learn the Word of God. I don't really need to humble myself. I don't really need to run everything, I think, before the bar of God's Word. Not really, because I basically, I can just follow my heart. <laughs> How many people have followed their heart right into hell? I'd say all of them. I'd say all of them. And, and, and yet that is the most popular thing. Pride in its 10,000 forms. Pride, pride, pride is the beloved darling sin tripstick that is the mother of all the specifics. Now what's the formula for a cult leader? It's a very simple formula. And what is a cult leader besides a professional tripstick manufacturer? What's the formula for a cult leader? A high degree of uncrucified pride and a low degree of crucified discipleship. A high degree of self-confidence and a low degree of humble discipleship. And that makes a cult leader, that makes a, somebody who hands out the trip sticks uh, high and low, fast, all the time. So here's the trip sticks within. So what's Jesus' prescription? Number three, his prescription is cut it off and cast it from you. Now again, you realize that this is a metaphor and a hyperbole, but you also must realize, we must also realize, it's meant to be shocking. It's meant to, to give us the idea that this is something you need to get rid of right away, whatever it takes. You don't want that in you. If you realize you've got that in you, that, that this person or thing or feeling or whatever means more to you than Jesus and that you follow it, well then, that needs to go like a diseased limb. In fact, there's a, a number of us here who have had to part with organs and various things because of their being cancerous. And did we want to part with the organ? No. 
The question was, did we want to die a horrible death by cancer? No. So, yes, the organ can go, and it better go right away before there's any chance of it spreading. Well, that's the attitude we need to have towards these things in our hearts if we see them. Whatever it is that keeps us from an earnest walk with Christ, that points us in another direction, they've got to go. Is our pride worth going to hell for? Is our popularity worth going to hell for? Is this relationship with a human being worth going to hell for? Uh, is this indulgence or habit worth going to hell for? The answer in each question is, in each instance, is no. It's not worth it. And so Jesus says, well, cut it off. Because then he gets into what the, what the price is. Eternal fire, number four. Gehenna of fire. He says, it's better to lose a limb than to go with both your limbs, both your eyes, both your legs into eternal fire. He says in verse eight, the Gehenna fire, he says in verse nine. So, well, yikes. I mean, yikes. He says, uh, Gehenna of fire. He says, uh, eternal fire. Was it, isn't it unloving to talk clearly about hellfire? The answer is apparently not. Apparently not, because Jesus does it here. And he does it a number of times. And there's nobody who is more loving than Jesus Christ. He was incarnate love. He is love at the right hand of the Father. Jesus knows how to love, and Jesus spoke very plainly and very repeatedly about hell. Now, I remind you, uh, perhaps you weren't here when we talked about what Gehenna means. Gehenna, it comes from the Hebrew uh, Geben Hanom, the, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. You can find it in the Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnom. And it was a valley south of Jerusalem that became used for idol worship, for the worship of Molech. And people sacrificed their babies to Molech in that valley and sacrificed people to Molech in that valley. So when King Josiah discovered the law of God and a great true revival broke out, uh, one of the things he did was he defiled the valley of Hinnom. He defiled it so it couldn't be used for idol worship anymore. And it is said, the evidence is not crystal clear, but this became a dump and a, a place for sewage where a fire literally uh, burned day and night, uh, burning up the sewage, burning up in a terrible smell and a terrible smoke and a terrible uh, uh, stench and sight. So that Gehenna, that's a Greek way of saying Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, that became a symbol of hell, of eternity in hell. Now, there's two ways of going very wrong here. Somebody could hear that and say, ah, oh, so it's, it's symbolic, it's a metaphor. You know, well, perhaps it is, but you need to remember if it's a metaphor, then the reality is worse. So if you succeed in convincing me that this eternal fire is a metaphorical expression, it doesn't cool hell down any. It makes it hotter. If it's not literal fire, then it's worse than fire. And fire was just the best image at hand. Jesus calls it eternal fire. He calls it Gehenna of fire. There's fire, the burning fires of God's judgment for those who have committed the infinite sin of rebellion against God. There is no worse sin. You think of molestation and rape and murder. There's nothing worse than rebellion against God. We, we just think so because we're man-centered. Hello, that's the world. That's the whole world thing. But the universe is God-centered. And the worst crime is not a crime against man. The worst crime is crime against God. 
And there is no satisfying justice on that. So the punishment goes on forever and ever. Scripture is crystal clear about that. So it's a great error to say it's a metaphor, therefore it's no, no big thing. No, if it's a metaphor, then it's an even bitter thing, bigger thing. Another great error that people commit is they say, well, if it's fire, I mean fire stops burning once it's burnt something up. So this is just temporary. Uh, the person maybe is punished for a while, but then he's annihilated. Well, Scripture doesn't allow us to think that, not if we're faithful to Scripture. Jesus is crystal clear on that. Uh, you just need to jot down Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46, where Jesus talks about the judgment when he comes and sits as king. In Matthew 25:41, what he says to those who are accursed, he says to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So if the punishment is temporary, so is the life. But if the life of the saints is everlasting, then so is the punishment of the lost. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he's saying, you identify something in you like this, you need to get rid of it. You don't need it. Better to lose that and go, go into life whole than to uh, go into Gehenna with your pride, with your idolatry, with your approbation lust. So if we take Jesus seriously, and we should, we need to take his warning seriously. Uh, we should be eager to learn, letter B, what obedience requires. And what does it require? Well, once again, it requires loving God. I've got to humble myself Beneath, beneath the mighty hand of God, and I need to stay there all the time. 24-7-365, all the time under God's greatness. And so, as such, I need to fill my heart and my mind with His Word. That's the only thing that will guard me from these things. Psalm 119.11, what does that say? Psalm 119.11, Your Word have I treasured in my heart. To what end? That I might not sin against you. Uh, either sin keeps me from God's Word or God's Word, believed, applied, keeps me from sin. It's not magical. I need to understand it. I need to believe it. I need to apply it. And when I do that, it keeps me from sin. So it takes loving God, a commitment to God to know Him and His ways. But it also takes self-awareness. I need to see myself as I really am. And what am I really? Pretty much together? No, no, no. No disciple thinks that who's thinking rightly. No, I need to see myself as being needy and vulnerable before God as long as I live. I will always need God, and I will always be vulnerable apart from His protection. Uh, this world will never be safe until Jesus returns and takes it over. It will never be a safe place. So I do this, so I need to be humble before God. I need to heed Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10:12. These are worth having written on our hearts. Jesus, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks that he stands take heed that he does not fall. You know, the, it always, something bad always happens after the words, what can go wrong? And when I have that attitude towards myself, I got this, what can go wrong? <laughs> well, that's when pride leads to its inevitable fall. I need to stay humble under the hand of God. And then, relatedly, let's talk about what obedience involves. It requires knowing God and being humble before Him and constantly watching ourselves lest we 
fall. We need to have a realistic view of ourselves. What does it involve? Well, once again, it involves loving God to the point where I apply to myself the health checks in His Word. That when I see Him saying, you need to be in my Word constantly, I say, okay, then I guess I need to be in His Word constantly. You need to write this on your heart. Well, I guess I need to write this on my heart. When I see him saying, you need to be involved in a church membership where you are under the watch of the elders, where the others watch you, and where if you fall into sin, they will confront you as a member. And if you do not repent, they will cast you out as a member. You need that. And I say, well, you say I need it, then I need it. And he says, you need to humble yourself. Well, I need to humble myself. You need to accept correction and reproof. Well, then I need to accept correction and reproof. You see, uh, it's, that's the application of this that keeps me watchable and self-watching in a way that honors God. And it also involves mortifying my flesh. Now, this is a short verse, but let's look here at Romans 8 because it's a, it's a heavy verse. It's a very dense verse. It's a little thing that weighs a whole lot. Of course, Romans 8 is wonderful, and I hope I have the opportunity to preach or teach Romans to you. But Romans 8 and verse 13, very, very dense. So let's, let's read it, and then let's slow down and look at it more closely. Paul says, I'll start with verse 12 to start the sentence. So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. Wow. (laughs) That is dense. That really takes some unpacking, and I'll only be able to do a little bit right now. But I can't do this, but I must do this. What do you mean you can't do this? Well, I need the Spirit. If by the Spirit you're doing this, so I can't do this. But I must do this. Why? He says, you were putting to death. So I can't do it on my own, but the Spirit won't do it for me. I, by the Spirit, must be putting to death the deeds of my body. And what's the importance of it? If you don't do that, you'll die. What does that mean? It it marks me as not a believer. If I'm walking according to the flesh, Paul has said in this chapter and in this book, If I can walk according to the flesh comfortably and live that way, well, then Christ is not in me. But as a born-again person in whom the Spirit of God dwells, the Spirit leads me. And the way He leads me is to be in the process of putting to death the practices of the body. Putting to death, not putting them on restricted diet, not putting them on a leash, but putting them to death, killing them dead. This is what is called mortification, not a word we use a lot in this connection, but it's a very good one. And there is a very good book, not easy reading, but written by John Owen called The Mortification of Sin. Very good book, but as I say, very, uh, very thick reading. Uh, yet I'm going to quote some of it to you, just one brief bit. John Owen, speaking on this verse, says this. He says, I'll, I'll modernize the language just a little bit. He says, you must mortify. Remember, mortify means put to death. You must mortify. You must make it your daily work. Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. And here comes the killer line. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And is that not just in the spirit of what Jesus says? To be deadly serious about rooting out the tripsticks as I see them, 
Whatever the cost, he says, that's better than going to hell. And Paul says amen to that, just in a different way. So, as again I say, and, and this is exactly in the context of Matthew 18, one of the ways this happens is being in church, being a member of a church, being identified with that church and having put myself under the discipline of that church. You read this chapter and you'll see that that is exactly in context for here. Because he starts out saying, humble yourself. It takes a humble person to accept correction. Then he says, don't allow trip sticks in others and don't allow them in yourselves. What's the next thing he's going to be talking about? The danger of straying and the fact that you've got to go after people who stray. And what's the next thing he talks about? Church discipline. What to do and I'll apply the language of the earlier parts, what to do when I see a trip stick in someone else. What to do when I see someone beginning to stray. And in the flip side, how I should accept it when someone comes to me with that concern. So if somebody comes to me saying, I believe I'm seeing this sin in your life, my attitude should be, boy, if he's found a trip stick, I want it out of me. Do you follow? And if it's me seeing the sin, my attitude should be, oh boy, I don't want him going on with that trip stick. See, this, all, this chapter all hangs very much together, and you see that God has provided the church as a primary means for this going on, as we read in Hebrews. Watch each other day by day, and encourage each other, and warn each other, and look out for each other. Don't let a root of bitterness grow up. Don't let an evil, unbelieving heart take form. That's Jesus' call to us. That's Jesus' warning to us. That is some attention-getting stuff, is it not? Boy, it should be. If it isn't, I don't know what is. Don't be tripping, our Lord says. So trip sticks abound without and within, and they can bring great harm. Our Lord warns us to be no part of them and to have no part with them. We don't want to cause them. We don't want to ignore them. We don't want to play host to them. The only safe place is to be in Christ. And the only safe modifier is to be close to Christ all the time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sharp living word from our Lord Jesus. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will make vivid application to each of us, that we will see how this applies in our lives. And that if it is shown to us trip sticks that are keeping us from a faithful walk with Christ, that we will diligently set to putting them to death, cutting them out, and throwing them away from us. But help us learn also to be better uh, watchers over each other, have greater care over each other, and helping each other be freed from the influence, the deadly influence of traps and tricks and deception. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.